Welcome to Worldview, the Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs. I'm David McKechnie. On today's podcast, we'll look at two world leaders and two key elections, 10,000 kilometres apart. One has been criticised for authoritarian tendencies after 15 tumultuous years in charge of his country. The other is a political novice whose election as president last Sunday threatens to undo a historic and hard-won peace deal. Today we are talking Turkey and Colombia with Stephen Starr and South America correspondent Tom Hennigan. First to Colombia and a convincing win by right-wing populist Ivan Duque in last Sunday's presidential runoff appears to threaten the future of the 2016 peace deal with the farc Arilla group, which ended a bloody half-century of conflict. Duque, a fierce opponent of the terms of the agreement, has promised to make corrections to the deal, including tougher punishments for crimes committed during the insurgency and possibly even stripping the FARC's new political party of seats reserved for them in Congress. Is Colombia's newfound peace already under threat? I'm joined on the line by South America correspondent Tom Hennigan. Hi, Tom. Hi, Dave. Tom, at just 41 years old, the relatively fresh-faced Duque has become Colombia's youngest president. He was a senator who formerly worked at the Inter-American Development Bank. What kind of character is he? Well, that's what um, a lot of analysts are going to be very eagerly watching to find out. Uh, He has presented himself, as you say, as this young, dynamic, uh, new generation coming into power. Um, He speaks the kind of the language of of market liberalization um, and uh, modernizing uh, Colombia's administration, uh, which is quite inefficient and lethargic and uh, trying to boost economic growth and um, raise uh, employment and diminish inequality. Um, But but then uh, the reality is that he is a protege of Colombia's former president, Alvaro Uribe, who is perhaps the most controversial figure in uh, Colombian uh, politics. Uribe is someone who um, started in politics on the right and has, has consistently marched further right ever since. Um, And uh, he is really the overlord of the political movement that uh, has raised uh, Duque to the presidency. And many people will be wondering, will Uribe be the kind of the puppet master pulling the strings of um, a Duque presidency? That remains to be seen. And that would raise some very um, crucial issues, as you say, about the peace process with the FARC, which Uribe was a was a very harsh critic of, and um, also then plans to reform the judiciary in Colombia, which Duque, a, a lawyer, has promised to do, which has led some to wonder if the real goal of that is to try and um, get Uribe uh, out of the many uh, judicial tangles his uh, alleged corruption and human rights abuses have landed him in. Tom, outgoing President uh, Juan Manuel Santos won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work on the peace deal. But it's fair to say that Duque's election is is a rejection of his legacy and and a sign of how divisive that peace deal was. Absolutely. Um, Santos, um, you know, is much more highly regarded outside of Colombia than than within the country, I think. Um, He had very little impact on the election campaign. His approval rating is somewhere below 20%. Um, and partly that is the economy. Uh, Colombian um, economic growth has slowed quite significantly. It was as a couple of years ago, it was trundling along at over 4% a year. Now it's just over one. And um, so there's a certain discontentment with that. 
But I think a lot of it is definitely um, to do with the peace deal with the FARC. President Santos in 2016, he thought that getting Colombians to approve the peace deal in a referendum would be pretty much a a slam dunk um, because it would bring um, the biggest uh, paramilitary group in the in the country into the political uh, sphere and get them to give up their weapons. Uh, He was surprised then, uh, badly surprised when the referendum failed. And that was a a no vote led by Alvaro Uribe. Uh, And then what Santos did was he said uh, he did some very few cosmetic renegotiations with the FARC and then uh, rammed the deal through Congress. And that stripped it of a lot of illegitimacy in the eyes of many Colombians. And Uribe and and his candidate Ivan Duque have been able to capitalize on that. And um, a lot of that is centered on the fact that that the government of Santos gave away too much to the FARC, considering that uh, the FARC was very much on the back foot, largely thanks to military offensives that uh, started under President Uribe. So Santos um, really does leave power with this sort of international prestige for having got the FARC to sign peace, but uh, with a very, very um, truncated legacy within Colombia itself. You mentioned a, a couple of things Duque said he might do to the agreement. Um, how much can he do? I mean, does he have, uh, I suppose it also depends what what the situation is in Parliament. Absolutely. And, and that's the big question. Um, how will um, Duque be able to uh, impose these uh, corrections, as he calls them, that he wants onto the peace agreement? Um, the FARC have uh, straight away signaled after Sunday's vote that they would be willing to to negotiate with Duque to, um, you know, explain, as they say it, explain their vision of the peace agreement. Um, The new incoming president has said that he wants to toughen up penalties for um, FARC commanders for crimes they committed during the insurgency. And that could potentially mean that FARC leaders who have 10 seats in the Congress reserved for them for uh, until 2026, that they could lose, uh, that the the FARC wouldn't lose the seats, but the leaders who wanted to occupy those seats, if convicted uh, in in a special justice system created by the peace agreement, could lose the right to sit in in Parliament. And that would be a, a big blow to the FARC. They did very poorly in the elections. They're kind of reliant on those seats to maintain a national profile. Um, the question is, is, is how easy this will, will be. On paper, Duque has a majority in Congress, but that's a very fractured majority that could split over certain issues. And then it could also run into problems in the constitutional court. Uh, the judiciary in Colombia is quite slow, quite inefficient, but is very protective of, of its um, jurisdiction and its, its uh, constitutional role. So they could uh, potentially block any efforts to renegotiate the peace agreement or at the very least slow down um, uh, any attempts by Duque to do so. What, what is the situation, Tom, with, with FARC dissidents? And, and is it even possible that uh, if Duque tinkers too much with the, with the agreement and manages to, to make a number of changes, uh, that the guerrillas could rearm? I, I think it is uh, for a very simple reason that uh, Colombia was a very violent society before the FARC was ever formed. The FARC really uh, was a group that grew out of a previous conflict in Colombia known as La Violencia, which um, left several hundred thousand people dead over over almost three decades of violence. Um, so there is a there is a, a history of political violence in the country. 
Um, you also have still considerable amounts of lawlessness in certain regions. And then you also um, have recent um, numbers coming out showing that, that uh, coca production in Colombia is again hitting new records. And that means that there is a ready source of illicit uh, uh, money that uh, any potential uh, FARC dissidents could try and tap into. The FARC had previously funded their campaign using drug trafficking, and that um, is still an option there. Um, the country is awash with guns and porous borders. So while the FARC leadership have very much sought to play down any chance of the conflict restarting, there are conditions uh, there that would mean that any any of the dissidents within the movement, and there are estimated to be about 10% of the FARC's various fronts who have so far refused to demobilize. There is another smaller uh, guerrilla insurgency, the ELN, still operating. So there definitely is um, a chance um, that the that the insurgencies could uh, pick back up steam again. And, and are, are there are there implications for, for some other issues, Duque's election? Um, are there implications for other issues associated with the peace deal, such as land reform and, and uh, redistribution and, and those kinds of issues? Um, very much so. Um, Uribe's movement, the backbone of it, is the landowning class. Uh, it has various other components in in, his, in the Uribe coalition, but that's the backbone of it. Um, and uh, that's a very, very conservative uh, group in Colombia. Uh, it has been um, historically allied to right-wing paramilitaries that have combated um, the, the uh, communist guerrillas. Um, linked also, not all of them, but a certain percentage of them linked to drug trafficking as well as um, claims that Uribe himself once was. Um, and this group are very determined not to give up their control over the Colombian countryside. Um, you know, it's estimated that about two thirds of all arable land is, is held by less than half a percent of landowners in the country. Uh, when you read about and um, listen to FARC um, testimonies of people, why they went into the FARC, uh, most of the commanders in the higher up tended to be educated um, Marxists from the cities who went out into the countryside. But the foot soldiers, most of them were like, I had just no perspective. Um, there was no hope in our region. So, you know, the, the guerrillas were offering me a square meal a day and um, a small amount of pay. So uh, land reform is key to securing peace in Colombia. And uh, Duque uh, has been very, very uh, timid on backing the land reform proposals in uh, the peace agreement. He is instead talks about unleashing the capacity of the countryside. But you have had um, the land observatory at one Bogota University said they expect that the several key components of the peace agreement relating to land, which would be a proper national registry, um, a land redistribution program and restitution of land that was illegally seized by large landholders. All of that would be frozen under a Duque government. That's their expectation. Um, so I do think that uh, the land issue, which was a key component of the FARC's um, um, negotiating strategy to have a land reform program. That is now uh, in real doubt with uh, the, the Duque incoming government. And that then leaves the potential for the social inequality, which has been behind a lot of the violence in Colombia over decades, um, to continue.
Finally, Tom, this election does underline the continuing strength of the right wing in Colombia and how polarised the country is, as we, as we mentioned. Are there any crumbs of comfort for those on the left? I, I think more than crumbs, actually. Um, traditionally, uh, Colombian politics was split between the liberal and conservative parties, which were really two branches of the country's elite. And they divided power between them um, going back to the 19th century. But um, Gustavo Petro, who came in second, uh, he got eight million, over eight million votes on Sunday. Um, and that's the, the third time in the last four elections that what we might identify as a leftist progressive candidate has come second and forced to run off and, um, in Colombia. So I do think that the old political system where two essentially conservative strands of the elite were able to control the presidency that is now gone and we're seeing a a kind of a left progressive alternative emerge as the main contender for power in Colombia. Um, and obviously, they're trying to change over a century of, of political tradition. It's taking time. But I do think that they are inching closer and closer to power. And um, and I think that was also reflected in the in the. Uh, disgraceful, really, campaign waged uh, in the media and online um, against uh, Petro, the losing candidate on Sunday, to try and smear him with all sorts of lies that were easily disprovable, but um, circulated widely on Facebook and WhatsApp and, and Twitter. Um, it's not sure how many people were, were um, pulled in on them. But I do think that there is a recognition amongst a, what is a conservative elite in Colombia that there is now a, a progressive force um, to the centre left and further out to the left. That is now a credible challenger to their control over the country. Tom Hennigan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now to Turkey and voters will go to the polls this Sunday after President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's surprise decision in April to call snap parliamentary and presidential elections. Most observers have interpreted the move as a power grab. If he wins, Erdogan will be able to put the seal on a new executive presidency that was narrowly approved in a referendum last year. But to the surprise of many, in the build-up to the election, the president has not had things all his own way. For the first time, Turkey's opposition is united, portraying this election as a fight to save Turkey's soul, as well as its system of parliamentary democracy. I'm joined on the line by Stephen Starr. Hi Stephen. Hi Dave. Stephen, perhaps we can begin with last year's referendum to change the country's constitution. Could you remind us what that was about and what is at stake in Sunday's election? Yeah, well, for the the entire history of the Turkish Republic, it's been a parliamentary system uh, with the secular worldview enshrined in in its constitution. And as you mentioned, in uh, in a constitution last year, uh, that was changed uh, on the whim of of President Erdogan. What he wants to introduce is a is a presidential system that will see him as president, uh, being in complete control. Of political life in in Turkey. Now, uh, during that particular referendum last year, what was interesting was that uh, the three major cities in Turkey all narrowly voted against uh, Erdogan's proposed changes. But obviously, nationwide, it was carried by a very, very uh, uh, small uh, percentage. So it's really set up uh, Sunday's parliamentary and presidential elections really on a knife edge, I think, uh, based on how close the, the constitutional uh, referendum was last year. It, d- it does appear, as you say, that he's facing a, a credible challenge um, by the opposition. How, how has that come about and, and who are the key figures? 
Well, it's been brought forward, as you mentioned, uh, by 17 months. You know, the, the elections on Sunday weren't due to be held till the end of next year. There's a couple of different, uh, you know, reasons or ideas behind why he did that. One is that Turkey is currently involved in a number of military operations in Iraq and Syria, and he's running on the back of a wave of uh, nationalist sentiment in, in Turkey. Another uh, is that the Turkish economy is not doing very well at the moment. Uh, inflation and unemployment are in double digits and have been for quite a while. So it's seen in some quarters at least that if he calls early elections, if he gets what he wants on Sunday and secures his power, both uh, by securing the pres presidency and the majority in the parliament, that he'd be able to stave off uh, any threat or any other lingering issues that would perhaps have played out should the elections have happened uh, 17 months from now, as as had been planned. So he's going up against four other candidates on Sunday for the presidency. There's Maharam Inje, who is the CHB's uh, uh, representative. He's in some ways very much like Erdogan when he rallies, when he speaks in front of, of supporters. He's quite outspoken. He targets Erdogan a lot. He's invited Erdogan to a number to uh, to a number of uh, television debates. Erdogan has, has refused those many times, and of course, Inje has used that to, to bolster his his own support. Um, Inje is a former uh, uh, school principal and physics teacher. He's about ten years Erdogan's junior. He's quite lively. He has been uh, surprisingly quite popular, and a lot of the polls are pointing to him doing quite well. Po probably coming second. Uh, to Erdogan with about 27 or 28 percent. Uh, all the other candidates include uh, Mersal Akshener. She is the leader of a new party called E-Party that split from a nationalist party called the MHB last year uh, due to Erdogan. So she has a lot of support, particularly with nationalists, um, nationalists who oppose any kind of uh, support for Kurdish Kurdish uh, talks around the Kurdish solution. There's also, of course, Saladin Demirtas, who is the former co-chair of the uh, HDB party, which is a Kurdish-focused and left leftist party. He's uh, campaigning from prison. He's been detained since November 2016 on charges of, uh, of, doing, of making propaganda for uh, terrorist organizations, namely the PKK. Um, there's one other, one other uh, opposition, uh, one other um, candidate as well, who's the leader of the Felicity Party, which is an Islamist party, is not expected to do uh, very well at all in the uh, presidential race. But uh, combined, uh, Inje, Actioner, Demirtas, they may, uh, you know, it may work out that they take quite a lot of votes from Erdogan. So, but they have been working together, is that right? Or, or it, is some, it is some sort of a united front against Erdogan? Yeah, that's right. In terms of the parliamentary elections, there's two fronts, two alliances going up against each other. One is the People's Alliance, which sees the AK party and a right-wing nationalist party called the MHB uh, running together on the, the opposition hand. The opposition, as you mentioned, it's a number of different parties. It's the, the CHP, uh, the uh, E party, and a couple of others. Um, what's, what, as you mentioned, what's interesting is that you've got the opposition uh, working together for the first time. And what's critical on Sunday, really, is that uh, the MHP, which is, as I mentioned, the, the Kurdish ruled party, is not part of this opposition alliance. Now, if the MHP manages to secure more than 10 percent, which is the threshold for entry to parliament in Turkey, it will more than likely be enough to do away with the, the, the AK party's uh, parliamentary majority, which would be a, a really serious blow uh, to Erdogan going forward. Just looking at, at the presidential vote there, um, obviously, it's a first round and... 
if Erdogan doesn't poll over 50%, um, I believe there'll be a second round. Looking at the polling, how might that pan out if, if there is a second round? It's looking, it's looking likely that there would be a second round, all right. Erdogan's looking at getting about 47, 46% in the first round. Second round, should it happen, would happen on July the 8th. Uh, we don't know what, what would happen thereafter, but we, you know, we, can, we can surmise that all the other opposition parties might get together and rally behind uh, Maharam Inje, who would be the likely second-place uh, candidate uh, would run off against Erdogan in in a, in a second round. Now, this, there would be a lot of toing and froing in terms of, you know, the the uh, Demirtas's uh, supporters would have to uh, work with uh, the E party, which is a nationalist party, as I mentioned. You know, they have been polar extremes in the Turkish political uh, spectrum for for decades. How that would work out? Would they come together? Would they put aside their differences in order to, to take on Erdogan? It's not likely, and I think in a second round, if it happens, that uh, that Erdogan w- would be defeated, which makes the, the parliamentary elections, in, in, in my uh, point of view at least, uh, much more critical and much more interesting. What, what are the opposition saying about this uh, executive presidency plan? Um, if they win, what will happen to it? So they say, they're saying that they'll hold a second, uh, another uh, referendum to see to, to ask the Turkish people if they if they want to 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 uh, oppose or or, or put, turn down the uh, Erdogan's proposed uh, constitutional changes that for for the presidency that he would uh, that he should I guess if he wins the election assume um, the other issue of course is that um, as I mentioned it's you know the uh, there's a lot of there's a number of military operations as I, as I mentioned in Iraq and Syria it's what a lot of people are are concerned about. Um, they're also saying all the opposition leaders in the, on the campaign trail that they would do away with the state of emergency that's been enacted following the 2016 failed military coup. This is, you know, thrown thrown to the side. Uh, all judicial processes, people have arrested in the crackdown that followed uh, once and if a state of emergency is lifted. And by the way, Erdogan is saying he would also lift the state of emergency uh, should he win. Either uh, if the opposition win, um, this uh, state of emergency would be lifted and, and would see, ideally at least, uh, um, a more uh, democratic wave, I guess, entering Turkish politics. You're working this week on a story about how Turkish infrastructure has been transformed under Erdogan and the AK party and how large scale investment over many years has, has helped shore up their vote. Can you, can you tell us a bit more about that and, and the political juggernaut that, that is the AK party? So before it came to power in 2003, Turkey was a, you know, a very backwater, backwater country. Its infrastructure, infrastructure was terrible. It was fighting high inf- inflation. The AK party came in, uh, changed all of that. You know, I've traveled a lot around Turkey, and uh, you can see in even the most rural parts of, of the country that there's been huge progress in the development of in- infrastructure. There's uh, a canal, Istanbul, which is set to be started on this year that would create a new uh, canal west west of Istanbul by which the government would be able to uh, uh, charge ships passing to and from the Black Sea. Um, but even, you know, as I say, going to eastern Turkey and even to parts of uh, the Kurdish-majority regions, which traditionally are not uh, Erdogan supporters or AK party supporters, there's been huge infrastructure changes. You see malls going up uh, left, right and center. There's new highways being built. And for a lot of people, you know, this is what it's about. And, you know, all politics is, is local, as they say. And, uh, you know, for the most part, even people who do not particularly like Erdogan as, as a person will support the AK party. 
simply because their lives uh, have improved vastly over the last 15 years. Now, there are, as you, as you mentioned, there are concerns about the strength of the Turkish economy and uh, the lira has been struggling in recent months. How big a factor has that been in campaigning and, and, and might it have a, a big impact on the outcome? It's the, it's the number one issue, uh, you know, when you speak to people on the streets and people around Istanbul. Turkey is facing a currency crisis. It's lost 20% in the last year alone. You know, when I moved to Turkey first in 2013, uh, a dollar will get you two, two liters. Now it's it's up to 4.7 liters to the dollar, um, which of course has hit import and export uh, uh, companies and business people. Um, inflation, of course, is a, is a major issue. Unemployment as well, you know, as I mentioned, particularly for young people, you know, people coming out of university, people, young people who have never known the, the, the bad old days of, uh, you know, electricity shortages, uh, military coups during the 1990s, people who expect, uh, who, who see what's happening now, who see life under the AKP as a norm. Uh, they, they expect more, they want jobs, those jobs are, are, are not there for the most part. And of course, there's the issue of, of education too. And since the crackdown that, that followed the 2016 coup, uh, thousands of, uh, of educators and university lecturers have been imprisoned. So students are seeing that uh, the, the level of education that they're getting is going down and they will be a critical vote. There's 1.5, I think, uh, first-time voters expected to take part on Sunday and, and how they vote will play, not a major, will not have a major say in, in, the turn, in how things uh, turn out, but it's certainly a factor in, uh, in deciding uh, what happens on Sunday. So there is a bit of a sense that that crackdown after 2016 is that they might pay for it a little bit in the, in the, in the ballot box. Yeah, I mean, most commentators are saying that this is, you know, perhaps the most important elections in in in, in modern Turkey, and uh, the fact that the referendum was passed by such such a slim majority, the fact that the AK party lost its parliamentary majority in the June 2015 elections, there's a number of different issues. The economy, of course, is worse now than it was a year ago, or or two, or even five years ago. Uh, there's a real sense that all these issues combined at this particular time, uh, coupled with the fact that the opposition has uh, united. Uh, could mean that, uh, you know, this is the, the most serious threat to, to Erdogan's rule uh, since the AK party took power 15 years ago. Has this campaign been fought on a, on a level playing field? For instance, what, what has media coverage been like and how balanced is it? And, and uh, you know, what is the political climate right now, really, after after what happened in 2016? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, it's settled down, but that's only because the majority of independent news and media outlets have either been closed or taken over by... Uh, by uh, people who are, have ties to, to Erdogan and, and the AK party. I'll just give you a fact there. Uh, you know, on, on state media for the last two weeks, Erdogan has enjoyed 68 hours of TV coverage. Uh, Selahattin Demirtas, of course, who's in prison, has has got just 20 minutes in two 10-minute uh, statements he was allowed to give to, to TRT, the, the, the state broadcaster. You know, I mean, that gives a sense of exactly uh, where... Uh, where 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 the, the coverage has has been and uh, the advantages that Erdogan and the AK party have, you know, it's it's there, there was a couple of years ago there were, there were dozens uh, of independent uh, news and and uh, and uh, television stations. Now it's down to a half a dozen, and most of those are are, are you know very much uh, supporters or at least issuing messages in support of Erdogan. I guess if they're polling reasonably well, the opposition is managing to get its message out somehow. Is, is that sort of a grassroots campaigning and, and sort of social media and that type of thing? Yeah, for the most part, you know, I mean, they haven't been, they haven't got a whole lot else to rely on, but it's it's been mostly through through rallying, 
um, you know, there's been you know many of the the opposition candidates are are, are rallying three are, are attending rallies, giving rallies three times a day. Of course, this is meet and drink to Erdogan. He's been doing this for a very long time. He really enjoys getting out in front of people and speaking speaking to people. He too has been giving up to three speeches uh, right around the country uh, a day. And that's set to, set to intensify, of course, over the next few days as uh, as the election happens on Sunday. So we all remember, of course, those dramatic pictures of Erdogan making an appeal to the nation by FaceTime um, during the failed coup in 2016. I suppose he's nothing if not a survivor. Um, on balance, do you expect him to to come through this this fight too? Yeah, I expect him to. I expect the presidential election to go to a second round, which he will win. But I, I have a feeling that he will not get the parliamentary uh, majority that he that he desires and needs. It would be a partial victory, I suppose, in, in the overall picture. The crucial issue is whether or not the, the HDP, the, the Kurdish party, whether or not that uh, gets over the 10% threshold to enter parliament. If it gets in, Erdogan will most likely not get the parliamentary majority. If it doesn't, most of those votes would go to the MHP and that would secure him uh, a majority in parliament. We'll wait to see what happens. Stephen Starr, thanks for joining us. That's all we have for today. Thanks to today's contributors, Stephen Starr and Tom Hennigan. Today's podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan and JJ Vernon. I'm Dave McKechnie. You can find Worldview and other Irish Times podcasts on whichever platform you use or at irishtimes.com.